This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to my audio imaginarium. Wishing you all a blessed, peaceful, joyous Christmas and a healthy, prosperous New Year. Kalach Christuyana. Uh, and I want to acknowledge those of you Uh, who are listening, for whom this is a difficult time of year. Perhaps you recently lost someone very dear to you. Or perhaps, for whatever reason, you find yourself all alone during Christmas. Those of you not feeling well, those of you with loved ones that are facing some kind of health challenge, illness, disease, know that I am thinking of you and that you are not alone. A Christmas is a time for miracles, and I believe in Christmas miracles. I'm, I'm very blessed. I have three Christmas miracles of my very own at home, fast asleep, most likely, the mighty Aphrodite, of course, Zachary and North. If you are awake, why? <laughs> uh, and if you're, uh, if you're awake, well, uh, Merry Christmas to all of you. Uh, let me tell you about a Christmas miracle that's sauntering down the hall as we speak. That would be the good Dr. George Genescu. George is uh, heading into his 65th or 66th year year in broadcasting. I've lost uh, count, but uh, George is the host of Big Band Sunday Night here on our flagship station in Toronto, AM740. And I I know for those of you listening in on one of our U.S. affiliates or the podcast, uh, that name, George Genescu, won't mean much. Uh, I've, men- I've mentioned George from time to time. I only wish you could know him. He never tout, uh, uh, toots his own horn. And you'd never know to meet him that he is the true spirit of Christmas personified. When I think of George Genescu, I'm, I'm reminded of the last lines of Charles Dickens' Ebenezer Scrooge, or Christmas Carol. And it's as if Dickens was writing about George when he wrote, It was said of him that he kept Christmas well, if any man alive possessed the knowledge. Uh, God bless you, George, and Merry Christmas. I always uh, say, uh, people are always saying, Christmas is for children, Christmas is for children. And I always say, uh, it's not really. Uh, It's about a child 
one very special child, uh, born in Bethlehem under a wonderful star over 2,000 years ago. Having said that, however, uh, I do want to mention a certain child who I'm sure is very excited about Christmas this year. Uh, what child isn't? Uh, but young Callum, young Callum or Callum, uh, who is three, I believe, uh, is battling cancer. And beyond Christmas, he's, steer, uh, he's staring at a round of intracranial radiation, or intercranial, intracranial radiation, I should say. Uh, and his mom and dad are big fans of the show, and I just want them to know uh, that I'm thinking of them and Calum. Uh, and because I believe in Christmas miracles, I'll ask you all to keep Calum and his family from uh, Denver in your prayers this Christmas. If you go to my uh, Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, I've got a couple of posts there about young Calum, and there's a picture of the little guy, beautiful little boy. Uh, sometimes it helps to have a picture uh, when you're saying a prayer for someone. So uh, please uh, keep young Calum in your hearts and in your prayers this Christmas. And also, uh, just a, a quick shout-out uh, to my nephew Michael, if you're listening. You're in my prayers too. Merry Christmas. Michael, uh, remember, that's a very powerful name you have. It is the highest of the heavenly angels, and I believe he's watching over you right about now. Uh, I mentioned Jesus. It is the season, and tis the reason, rather, for the season. But most of us uh, probably understand that Jesus probably wasn't born on December 25th. So if he wasn't born on the 25th of December, when was it, and does it matter? Uh, that's where we're going over the next uh, 20 minutes or so. We're going to begin by opening up a mystery for this season. When was Jesus really born? Uh, and then in the second half of the hour, we're going to talk about the mystery of the Shemitah. We've discussed this before, but we'll get some updates. Uh, the continuing signs and manifestations of the Shemitah uh, that may be warning, of, uh, warning us of a coming calamity and judgment. Jonathan Kahn is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Harbinger. And he's just come out with his new book, The Mystery of the Shemitah, the 3,000-year-old mystery that holds the secrets of America's future, the world's future, and your future. It's immediately become a national and New York Times bestseller, and it's qu uh, causing quite a stir around the world. Jonathan leads the Jerusalem Center Beth Israel in Wayne, New Jersey. And he's president of Hope of the World, an outreach to people throughout the world. He's also known for uncovering the deep mysteries of the Bible and has 2,000 teachings and messages uncovering the mysteries available at Hope of the World. Jonathan Kahn, how are you? Great, Richard. <laughs> Great to talk to you. Uh, always a pleasure to have you. Now listen, I, 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 I somewhat hesitate. I don't know. Uh, may I wish you a Merry Christmas? How do you feel about, how do you feel about Christmas? Sure. I mean, well, I feel great about the birth of the Messiah. Sure. You know, so uh, whenever the time is, any time one can celebrate it. So, yeah, you know, we'll talk about when, when, it, when we believe it happened. But, and listen, it's, you, can celebrate, you can celebrate the birth of the Messiah, the coming into the world of the light anytime. So, Wonderful. Yeah. Then a very Merry Christmas yeah. to you. So, you. So Jesus was not born on December 25th. I think most of us sort of understand that. But if not December 25th, then when? Yeah, well, the first thing is, you know, the, the first clue we have with this is the, is, the ta is the season. I mean, we, 
the reason why he would not have been born on December 25th is because, you know, if you go to Israel today, uh, just as it was then, it is cold, it is, it is the coldest season, it is the winter, it is, it is rainy or snowing at times, right. it's daunting. Uh, forget about a pregnant woman traveling. I mean, even traveling under the best circumstances, you know. Um, and then the idea of the shepherds being out, I mean, they're, the one season they're definitely not going to be out. I mean, if any, is going to be winter out in their fields. So, and on top of that, the idea of the census, you know, the Romans uh, have planned their census to get money, you know, so the, the worst possible season to do this, they would just never do it in the winter. In fact, Jesus, at one point when he's speaking about the end times, he says, he says, pray your flight not be in the winter, because it just, you just, just could not travel then. So right, right. Really the winter is ruled out, you know. But then, what do we have left? You know, you have, uh, the autumn is also ruled out because because nine months before the nativity, Mary conceives, and she makes a journey down across Israel to see her cousin Elizabeth, who's right. pregnant with which, who, the man who will be John the Baptist. That's right. So that, but that puts that in the winter. That puts another, you get another problem, because, you know, again, then we have a, a journey, which would be under the best circumstances, very hard for a young woman, but across Israel, but forget it on wintertime. So... That's, that leaves us with the summer and the spring. And so we, got, we have the summer, um, and the summer, you know, you could travel, but uh, on the other hand, it is the working season. Um, the, uh, well, as far as the, it's the season of the harvest, it's the season of when, when everybody's in the field, not the time you, the Romans would have a census, because they're just not going to leave the field, number one. And the other mystery in, in, with Jesus, uh, or Yeshua, is that all the greatest uh, events of the New Testament or the or the seminal events, they all happen on Hebrew holy days. You know, he uh, he comes into Palm, Palm Sunday. He comes into Israel. Well, that well, Jerusalem, that is uh, Nisan ten. That's the first Hebrew holy day that God gave the Jewish people. Then he dies on Passover, Nisan fourteen fifteen. That's the other Jewish holiday. Then he rises on the on uh, Nisan sixteen, which is the Hebrew feast of first fruits, as the first fruit. And then you have Pentecost. Even Pentecost is a Hebrew holy day called Shavuot. So every single thing, really, all the biggest events happen on the Hebrew holidays. So we would expect, you know, if his death does, that there would be something significant about the birth linked to some Hebrew day, some special day. Well, the problem with the summer is you don't have any on top of it. So that kind of leaves us to one more season to start with. And what you got is, you, the only thing left is the spring. Now, there's, you have, with spring, all the, all the uh, clues really fall into place, because one, it would, nine months before the spring would be summer, you could travel. A time when a pregnant woman could be outside giving birth with her husband, yes, the spring works. And a time when shepherds are with their flock. In fact, you know, the times that shepherds are out in the fields at night in Israel would be one season of the year, which is the season when the lambs are born. And that the lambing season, well, the lambs are born in the spring. That's really the only time they would be out in the field watching for the birth of lambs. And, you know, kind of... You know, makes sense even you know theologically because you know Jesus comes in as the Lamb of God. Right, right. He is born in Bethlehem, the place of the lambs, where actually the temple lamb sacrifices were raised. Particularly in Bethlehem, he's greeted by shepherds who are watching, who are the ones who greet the births of lambs. So you know, the, the, it really narrows it down to March, or well, actually 
February at the earliest, then March, April, May, maybe, but March and April are the are the key parts of that. And that that brings us that narrows it down even more to a to a particular month in Israel, which is called Nisan. Now, Nisan literally means the beginning. I mean, so it's a it's the month of the beginning. So it's a great you know here the birth you know is going to be the beginning. It's the beginning of the age. Well, so it's the perfect time. And note also, there's a tr- there's Hebrew traditions that that the great sages of Israel are born in Nisan and die in Nisan. And we know that Messiah, or Jesus, died in Nisan, and he dies as the Passover lamb. Well, one of the things that it's said about the Passover lamb is the Passover lamb is actually, you know, the actual lamb is a year old. It says one, a year old male without blemish. Well, that means that, that if the Passover lamb dies in Nisan and he's a, a one years old of the lamb itself, that means he has to be born in Nisan. I mean, it just makes right, no, right. Just, in order to be a year old, right? Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is, is there any, you know, is there any date on the Hebrew calendar that would be special because everything, you know, would be, be of some significance that would be linked to this, and that it kind of has to fall in the right place? Because the the other thing is, there are prophetic mysteries that not only. Does Jesus, you know, fulfill all these things on the Hebrew holidays? But he does so in the order that they appear. In other words, you know, uh, Nisan ten is first. So that, that's the day actually they brought the lamb to the to Jerusalem or to their houses on Passover. Well, that's Palm Sunday. Then he goes to the death and resurrection. Everything goes in order. So if his birth goes in order, it would have to be before you know Passover. It would have to be sometime in Nisan. Before that, well, is there any date that's significant? Well, there is one date, and that one date is the date, it's Nisan 1. And the reason why that's significant is Nisan 1 is the true beginning of the sacred year. It's the real Jewish New Year, and we we have an idea, you know, it said that uh, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, is the New Year. No, it's not. Biblically, there's only one. God says this is the beginning. So what, first of all, what more perfect Hebrew it says holy day that he'd be born on would be the beginning it's the beginning of the beginning plus the other the other let me just get you to hold on to that jonathan because yeah. we'll uh, we'll take a time out sure. we'll come back and delve into mm-hmm. uh, when was christ born unraveling a mystery of biblical proportions quite literally jonathan khan is with us the author of the harbinger and the mystery of the shemitah otis redding's version of white christmas and it's a good one takes us out here on the conspiracy show stay with us i love otis redding's version of white christmas so much i thought we'd play it twice once going out of the break and coming back in uh, we were actually uh, also doing our our uh, our hangout on air tonight our hoa as the kids call it our hangout on air and if you want to uh, watch the program as well as listen to it uh, go to my twitter feed at richard serrett while you're there you can say hi and follow me. But on the Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, it's up near the top, and there's a link there for the HOA. Just click on that link, it's, uh, and then you'll be able to stream it live on YouTube and uh, join us here in studio. Jonathan Kahn is with us, uh, president of Hope of the World uh, Ministries and uh, the author of, best-selling author of The Harbinger and Mystery of the Shemitah. Right now we're delving into the mystery of Christ's birth. When was he born? And not in December. Uh, Jonathan, you, you've sort of narrowed it down according to the, the clues that are laid out in the Bible mm-hmm. as, uh, well, it corresponds to really uh, Easter or Passover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, yeah, there, there's one there's this one day on the Hebrew calendar, uh, again, Nisan 1, the very, it's really the New Year's Day, and the, the interesting thing about Messiah's birth is that it has this, this quality or this, this effect 
that it changes history. It changes the calendar. I mean, this is where we get, you know, we get our calendar gets divided by his birth, you know. And it, it's interesting that, you know, there's this one day on the sacred calendar of God that also does that same thing, divides the calendar, and that's Nisan 1. It starts the new year. Right. And, that, and it's interesting that, you know, one, one of the things that happened with the early church is, that, unfortunately, is they divorced the roots, you know, the Jewish roots, and it, and it kind of Romanized it. So they took the, you know, the Jewish context and put it in a Roman context. Well, interesting because today, you know, we sell it. They, they they chose December twenty fifth, which is linked to New Year's, which again in the in the Roman calendar it has the same quality as in the in the Hebrew calendar. It would be Nisan one. That's the New Year day. But then there's even more. I mean, this is your, you know the the show's called the conspiracy. Show. Well, you know, there's possibly a conspiracy here too because. There, there's a, in the ancient church records, the church fathers, there's a, a one church father called Hippolytus, and he's often cited as the one who came up with December 25th. Saturnalia. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly, Richard. I mean, that, of course, it was a, a pagan thing, and they appropriated it, but then they came up with, you know, justification for it. Yeah, the, church, well, the early church did that a lot. I mean, it made yeah. sense to, in a certain extent. If you, you yeah. want to co-opt that, bring these new people into the fold, you take over their pagan holiday, and exactly. voila. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, but it's not good history, you know, but it's exactly so. And so the thing is that they say that he's the one who had the earliest uh, sighting of December 25th, but actually... What they, they found in, in the, the, the work that he has, it seems like his work has been doctored up. And from, there's a, a work from the 3rd century or 200s in, called De Pashka Computis, which is, which is universally seen as based on the lost work of Hippolytus. And it says, in it, Hippolytus says that Messiah is born in the springtime, linked to the Hebrew month of Nissan, which is the same thing again, Nissan one. Right. And then in the Lateran Museum in Rome, you know, there's an ancient statue of Hippolytus, which was they say they think it was probably probably done soon after his death. And on it, it says in Latin, it says Genesis Jesus Christus, or the birth of Jesus, the mm-hmm. Messiah. Right. And carved into the statue is the time which correlates with the spring, the Hebrew month of Nisan. So we don't know if this has been suppressed or what, but it's even there in the early church uh, church uh, documents. But here's, now here's another thing, I mean, and this is really cool, and, and there's a lot. I mean, there are things, we won't have time, but things from the Dead Sea Scrolls and so much of But here's something right here. That, you know, one of the things in, in the Gospel of John, it says, in, it says, the Word was with God in the beginning, the Word was God. Then it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, that's the Incarnation. So, right. Now the, the, or some translations say, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Well, the Greek word there for dwelt or tabernacle is the word, is the word skenoro. Now, now, that's the same word that's used in the New Testament to speak of the tabernacle. And now, now, in other words, the incarnation of, the, of Jesus in the New Testament is linked to the tabernacle. And as the word became flesh and set up a tabernacle, or set up a tent. In other words, when he took a body, he's like putting up a, he's setting up a tent. It's temporary, he comes into the tent. Right, well, right. The, the amazing thing is, in the Old Testament, there is the, the beginning of this, where there's actually the, the origin of this, where it is a picture, it's the only picture in the Bible that has this, where, where it says God actually set up a tent 
in the wilderness, it was called the tabernacle. And that tabernacle, when you put it into Greek, becomes that same word that's linked to when it says the word became flesh, or talking about the incarnation. So, what do we know about the tabernacle? Could it have a clue when God set up a tabernacle among his people in the wilderness, it was called the tent of meeting, where the glory of God actually dwelt with Israel in this tent, could it have a clue? Well, the amazing thing is, it does. I mean, an amazing so. First of all, the, the tabernacle was, was built, it took nine months to build it, which is the same, the same period of time of a human pregnancy, number one. That, you have that right there. And it begins right at Mount Sinai when, you know, when, when Israel, in a sense, enters a covenant with God, which right. is a marriage. So now you have, you have this, this nine months coming, coming together of this tabernacle. And remember, this is, the, this is the key in John of the Incarnation. Well, when was it finished? Well, the Bible gives the exact date of when it was finished, which would correspond to the birth, when this thing is the conception, from conception at Sinai to the finishing of the tabernacle of God. Well, it gives the, the date. Now, what is the date? The answer is, you know, is in Exodus 40 and verse 1 and 2. It says, you shall raise up the tabernacle of the congregation, you will put in there the ark, that's, in it, that's where the presence of God was, right. and here it says in Hebrew, Yom HaKodesh HaRishon Be'echad LaKodesh. Translation, you will do this in the first month of the year, on the first day of that month. What is the What is the first month? It's Nisan. What is the first day? Nisan 1. Wow. So it's really, it's even in there. The wow. tabernacle, the picture that the Bible gives of God tabernacling on earth is the, gives the exact date as Nisan 1. And, you know, it's amazing because not only that, and we can't go into all the detail now, but, but even the priestly calendar and the Dead Sea Scrolls point to the same date of Nisan 1. There's even, even astronomy, the appearance, you know, we talk about what would have happened in the East that the Magi, who were astronom- astrologers or astronomers back then, that's what it was. They were Persian, right? They were yeah, Zoroastrians. Persian, the Persian Zoroastrian caste of right. the priests who studied the stars all the time. You know, back then you didn't really have astronomers, they were all astrologers because they looked for signs in the stars. But, right. but they, you know, they're looking at, it. well, what would have caused them, and there's a whole thing we can go to, you know, the God willing in no time, but, but there was an, the occurrence where all these things line up in the East that they would have linked to Israel, and, it, and it's linked to, you know, what they had certain parts of certain planets they believe were linked to Israel, certain, certain things meant a king or a star, and so put it all together, it, the event happens on Nisan 1, you know, I mean, you know on 6 B.C., Nisan 1. And by the way, you know, you know, we think, what we say, well, that's kind of strange. We're talking about 6 B.C. Well, the thing is, we know the calendar's wrong on that. Jesus you know, was yes. not born in the year one. Because Herod the Great was dead by uh, the year one. Yeah, yeah, he was dead, exactly. He was dead in 4 B.C., and it says that, we know that from Josephus, and it says in, the same, in that same thing, it says that Herod ordered the, the death of all the children in Bethlehem who were, according to the, the appearance of the star, what the Magi told him, and so he, he ordered the death of all of them two years old and up. So he got 4 B.C., and two years old and up. Well, what does that mean? Well, it goes back to 6 B.C. Well, when you put all these things together, not only the priestly calendar, um, also the, again, the this, this astron- astronomical calendar, all these things point to Nissan, not, not only the year, not only the year, but Nissan won the exact 
date. I mean, you know, there, and and really there is That's so remarkable. much to this and pointing to it. I'll, I'll just I'll just give a, a one little other mystery here with that, and that is, it, I call it the mystery of the goel. And in the Bible, this mystery is this: there's a law that God gave to Israel that if a a, a, a mother, you know, uh, you know, or actually a wife cannot bear children and her husband dies then the, the, the nearest relative, could be a brother, can redeem, in a sense, the line of the brother by marrying the widow and raising up children. And so that, the person is called the Goel, which means the redeemer, but specifically a redeemer who intervenes in the line. Now, the interesting thing is, in the Bible, there's this mystery about the Goel, and that is that you keep seeing this intervening or intervention into one particular line or, li- or lineage in Israel, and that's the line of Judah. In the time of Judah, the very first, the one who started the line, you have this, this, this Goel redemption takes place, there's an intervention. Later on, in the book of Ruth, Ruth, Boaz, this famous story of Boaz and Ruth, he marries Ruth, she's the widow, and becomes the Goel of Ruth, and he's also the line of Judah, and by the way, their baby is born in Bethlehem. It's like a growing mystery. Well, the final mystery of the Goel is that God himself is going to become the Goel, and he's going to intervene in the line of man, and it's going to be in the line of Judah, same line. It's going to be in Israel. He's going to come upon them, and come upon Mary. And so you have this, this gigantic Goel redemption, like God marrying earth and marrying us and becoming one with us you know and from this is born jesus or yeshua in bethlehem well the time that ruth would have conceived when you look at the book of ruth when this goel redemption would have taken place would lead the birth of her son to the time of nisan in other words the time of this goel redemption is is about is nine months before nisan which is when it would have happened to mary for it to be Nissan one. So this is just another, another, you know, every single piece lines up to this exact time. And you can even trace it out by, you know, one thing we know is that we know that, the, that John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus, and we know that his father was in the temple as a priest um, under a certain, you know, receiving this revelation. Well, we know there's actually an ancient priestly calendar that we can tell when this would have happened. And there's only, there's only two times of the year he could have been in that temple, and one of those times leads the birth of Messiah being, again, Nisan 1. Wow, this is pretty well, this seems like it's nailed shut. I mean, there, how is this being received? How, when you deliver this message to, uh, to pastors and parishioners and so forth, how did, is there resistance to this? I mean, what's, I mean, what's the big deal? Why can't we just acknowledge that Jesus was born April uh, or Nissan 1, uh, 6 B.C.? Well, it's, it's you know, I mean, <laughs> I think mo- the the. the reaction, Richard, mostly is, wow, you know, like, wow, and like I knew, most people, as you said at the beginning, no, it cannot be December 25th, and so, you know, there's very, there's only certain times it could be, and even, mo- even really, most historians will say, you know, just, just based on the, the one thing about the lamb, the lambing season and the shepherds, right away it's got to be around that time, but most people are pretty, you know, like, whoa, you know, hey, yeah, you know, and, and really, listen, let me look at it, look at the time, it's the time of the beginning. Beginning. Well, it's springtime. What a perfect 
this is the time of new beginnings. It's the beginning of the beginning. It's even in Hebrew, God called the month the beginning. I mean, so I mean, it's kind of like in some ways pretty obvious, you know. But most people, I think, unless you're so committed to December twenty fifth, or you're so committed, you know, to giving gifts, and you know, and that uh, it's really, you know, hey, what a cool thing, you know. I mean, because it, it, it works, it fits, and God is perfect. I mean, he, he doesn't do anything floppy, you know. No, I mean Every, the symmetry. The symmetry in the biblical narrative is astounding, despite the fact that we're talking about what. 66 books written over, you know, 3,000 years or whatever it is. I mean, it just it just fits together like a glove, oh, a yeah. hand and, in a glove. What, listen, I was originally an atheist, and so, you know, what, what changed me is exactly what you're saying, is there was just nothing, nothing like the Bible, no book with the consistency, with the authority, and with prophecy that was coming true, that is coming true. I mean, that's what got me in the whole thing. God is so perfect, and, you know, every every moment of his life, or every big event happens according to the Hebrew prophetic calendar. In fact, we haven't gone into it, but the other part of that mystery that is that God has set up the whole age according to a, the Hebrew calendar, and so the beginning of the Hebrew calendar is the, is the springtime, and that's when the first coming, every, all these things take place. But... The, the other part of the Hebrew calendar is the autumn when you have the Feast of Trumpets and you have all these, all these feasts that all speak about the end times. And that's why, you know, there are many believers, and I believe they're absolutely right, and that, that, that the second coming is geared to the autumn feast, trumpets, the day of the Lord, and tabernacles. So there's a whole, a whole mystery that would begin the first day of that Hebrew calendar is the Psalm 1. We don't have time. Have we touched on the Mishkan clue? Well, the Mishkan... You know, it's my. I didn't say what it was. The the tabernacle is the called uh, in Hebrew the Mishkan. That's the Mishkan so clue. Uh. The Mishkan. I mean, in that. And by the way, I already you know saw all these things like narrowing down and everything pointing to Nissan one. And I had no idea at that moment that 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 was already laid out by the tabernacle, which is the absolute uh, foreshadow of the incarnation. It's the strongest one, and it actually gives a date. I didn't even know that when everything else led to it. So that was almost like icing on the cake. But Jonathan, there. this is fascinating. So, uh, Jesus' birthday, Nissan 1, again, around Easter time. Uh, listen, when we come back, Jonathan, you'll uh, hold on, stay with us, and uh, we want to get an update on a story that you and I talked about uh, several months ago, and that is the, the mystery of the Shemitah, which is, of course, the subject of another one of your runaway bestseller hits. The mystery of the Shemitah, the 3,000-year-old mystery that holds the secret of America's future, the world's future, and your future. And we'll get to that with Jonathan Kahn right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Welcome back. That's uh, Brian Wilson of uh, the Beach Boys fame and his uh, rather remarkable uh, version of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And uh, that's from an album in two, from 2005 called what, what I Really Want for Christmas. Brian Wilson, a remarkable arranger, one of the greatest, I think, of the 20th century. Jonathan Kahn is with us, and uh, he is unraveling Bible mysteries. That's what he does best. He, the author of The Harbinger and The Mystery of the Shemitah. And uh, we were talking about Christ's birth. We're going to get into the Shemitah. But for those interested in, in finding out more about the mystery of when uh, the Messiah was really born on DVD or CD. How can they do that, Jonathan? There, uh, there's uh, there's one called, a teaching called the the Mishkan Clue, and um, there's actually even more than we could, we could get into. But they can they can go to hopeoftheworld.org. That's our website. Has all that and has again about probably two thousand teachings. That these are some of them. Uh, they could just look for that, the Mishkan Clue, or, or anything called AD one, two, three, or four. 
And then also on World Net Daily, they also have the uh, something called the Mishkan Clue, and again in DVD and CD. So either either World Net Daily or our site, if they want to get in touch, hopeoftheworld.org. All right, Jonathan, the last time you were on, we talked about uh, your new book, uh, The Mystery of the Shemitah, and uh, there are some sort of some updates. It's constantly updating. But uh, first of all, for those who missed that show uh, and not familiar with the Shemitah, The Mystery of the Shemitah, what is it in a nutshell? Yeah. The mystery of the Shemitah is a 3,000-year-old mystery uh, that actually literally amazingly lies behind what's happening now. Um, I would say, you know, it's birthed out of the harbinger, and yet it's become so big. Um, it It is goes back to the time of Moses, and yet it actually lies behind the rise and fall of the stock market, the rise and fall of the economy, um, the, the actually literally the, the ascending of nations, the falling of nations, what the, the rise of America, what may be the fall of America, um, even end time prophecy is is so uh, the key in so many cases is the shemitah, um, and and it's so specific that it actually you know this is what blew me away at the beginning you know is that. It actually, it actually gives the dates of events, you know, contemporary events, things that have happened in, that have changed our lives, that have happened down to the day, the, the, I mean, the date, the day, the hour, the second. I mean, it's, it's quite specific, it's quite amazing, and we are in the Shemitah now. So th- that's the quick nutshell. And that, that's what led me to, you know, I mean, it begins with the Harbinger, but there was so much in it that, and because we're approaching and people are asking, that's why... I, I wrote the mystery of the Shemitah. I didn't plan on doing that originally, and yet as I started, so much there was so much more. I knew it was big. I didn't realize how big it was. You know, when I started, it was just so big that I mean, it, you know, it it blew me away. And when I get when I get blown away, I know there you know there's something good going on. Well, I'll tell you someone else who's who's uh, blown away. You've really captured the attention of of Glenn Beck uh, from from Fox. Uh, he I mean he's all over this. I mean he's talking about the mystery of the Shemitah uh, to anyone who listen. I mean you really. Yeah. Capt- captured his imagination. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I first, you know, I was on Glenn Beck a while back, and I when it was at the Harbinger, and, and so I mentioned it, but he didn't he didn't catch it then. And then I've heard I've been getting you know continual reports that he he's been talking about it continuously, um, and wants to he he wants me actually to, to do a whole program on it. So yeah, I mean it, it's it. it it's listen again. I mean, you, you know, I think maybe Richard. One of the reasons why the Lord it says he uses the foolish things to confound the wise, and you know, here the unlikely things. Well, I was an atheist, so I need things like heavy, you know, things to do it um, to make me. So, I, so when you know, when he blows, you know, when I'm blown away, that's how the harbinger started, and that's how this started. But it's re, it's 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 exact. I mean, you know, it for for so many years, you know, financial analysts have been like they've been mystified. Why do all these these great crashes happen on this one time of the year. Well, the answer is in the Bible, because this is the exact time that God ordained in the Bible for financial, literally, wipeout. And for those who don't know, the, the, in a nutshell, the Shemitah is, it means, it's the Sabbath year. It, you know, what happened is just there was, a, there was a Sabbath day, every seventh day was a Sabbath day, every seventh year is the Sabbath year. And basically what it meant was, that for an entire year there was no sowing, no reaping, no working on the land. The land rests, and on the, no buying or selling of the fruits of the land. The last day, something quite extraordinary happens. 
All credit is wiped out. All, all debts are wiped out. The financial accounts of the nation are literally wiped clean. That day is called Elul 29, or the 29th day of the Hebrew month, Elul. That's the wipeout day. Well, the amazing thing is that this mystery is still in effect. And, you know, what happened is when Israel turned away from God, the, the Shemitah, instead of being a blessing, turns into a sign of judgment on a nation or a civilization that has turned away from God, is driving him out of its life, and it comes back like with a vengeance, literally to strike the financial realm of the nation, it strikes the economic realm, and it even can strike the existence of the nation itself. So one of the things that I've seen, and this is, you know, it started with the Harbinger, but then what happened was, you know, it, it's, I saw that it not only, it didn't begin with 9-11, this thing has been happening, this mystery has been affecting our lives from the, the moment we were born. And just to give an example, we won't... Let me, let me get you to hold on to that. We'll, yeah, we'll give sure. that example when sure. we come back. Jonathan Kahn is with us, the mystery of the Shemitah, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Hang around for a while, won't you? That's the uh, the Brian Seltzer Orchestra and Boogie Woogie Santa. Uh, Jonathan Kahn is with us, Hope of the World Ministries, and we're talking about the mystery of the Shemitah, uh, continuing signs uh, that, uh, well, we are headed into some pretty rough waters. And um, now, you mentioned the, the rise and the fall of the stock market in our economy. Uh, now, how let, let's draw some parallels. Let's go back to, for example, uh, you know, 2007 and the uh, yeah. the prime the sub uh, sub uh, yeah. loan uh, uh, catastrophe. Yeah. Uh, does that time out? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is that the if you look at the, even the last starting the last 40 years, you have five major long term collapses of the stock market, and every single one of them happens at a seven year cycle to the one before the one after, which is the Shemitah. That's what happens. Not only that. Every single one of them happens at the in the year of the biblical Shemitah, the year appointed to wipe out every single one. And then when you get to the last two, it's as if this phenomenon is increasing in intensity, it's getting stronger. And I would I would link that to America and also other nations turning away from God because it, this is how it gets stronger. But here's what happens is. So in in two thousand and one, one of the the last Shemitah was two thousand to two thousand one, and then two thousand seven to two thousand eight. Uh, on the, the on, in uh, the last week of the Shemitah in two thousand one comes nine eleven. Nine eleven causes one week later the greatest collapse in Wall Street history up to that day. That greatest collapse happens on Elul 29, the exact day appointed of the Shemitah by God to wipe out uh, the nation's account and uh, particularly to strike a civilization that is driving God out of its life. On the exact day, down to the hours, is the greatest wipeout. Well, that record lasts for seven years. That, and, and then you have the final, finally it's topped in the Great Collapse, the Great Recession. Well, the greatest day of the Great Recession was September 29, 2008, comes the greatest collapse. What, and and it is, it's so great, I mean, even when, it, weird too, because when they, they go to the stock market that morning, they ring the bell, the bell refuses to ring that day, even they take it as a sign. Greatest collapse, when does the greatest collapse take, take place? On the on a rule 29, the exact same biblical day appointed 3,000 years before uh, to, uh, to wipe out financial accounts. So the, the two greatest collapses up to those days each happen on the exact same 
biblical day, they're separated, according to the mystery of the Shemitah, these clashes be separated by seven years. They're separated by seven biblical years down to the day, down to the hour, down to the second. And not only, you know, is it on Elul 29, but there's only one Elul 29 in seven years that could actually be the the actual wipeout day. And each one takes place on the one in seven year day, the actual one. This mystery, Richard, has been affecting I mean, our lives, I mean, in, in ways affected the world's financial markets, the, the economy, and even, again, we probably won't get into it, but even the rise of nation, the rise of America, the years of America begins its rise to superpower, the year of the Shemitah, it reaches its peak in the year of the Shemitah, 1945. When the Shemitah comes at certain times, it often means the shaking of nations, um, and it can mean the rise or fall of nations. Now, I'll tell you a, a, just a little bit of what, you know, what is some things that have happened since we talked, you know, and I'm not dogmatic that God has to do it, you know, in the exa- you know, God's not going to fit in our boxes, you know, and, you know, he doesn't have, not every cycle of the Shemitah does it have to be the same thing, um, but, but I would be aware of it. So having, giving that caveat that, you know, we're not date setting, even though there are dates in the book, and uh, we can mention some dates, but the point is that it doesn't have to, but here's what happened. In the last two Shemitahs, which is, again, 2001 and, uh, 2000, 2001 and then 2007 and eight. You, uh, when the Shemitah began, I mean, you have you had a foreshadow of what was going to happen at the end. The most dramatic thing happens at the end on that last day, that Elul 29 day. That's the last day of the Shemitah. But when it opens, the last two times there have been foreshadows at the beginning that something was coming at the end. Example, in 2007, when the Shemitah began, that same day comes the first bank collapse, uh, like a hundred-something years, happens in Great Britain, it, it, it's called Northern Rock, collapses on the day of the Shemitah, which is a foreshadow of what's at the end of the Shemitah, you can have banks collapsing all over the world. And, and within a month of the Shemitah beginning in 2007, the stock market that had been rising for years suddenly starts turning down, and then will begin to, it's gradual at first, but by the end of the Shemitah, it's the greatest collapse since the Great Depression. Not to put too fine a point on it, uh, not to put that too point, fine a point on it, but again, you know, we're talking about the, these seven years, seven, seven, uh, on uh, September 29, 2008, I yes. believe the stock market fell by 777 points. Yes. Yes, on the day of sevens, the biblical day of crown that crowns the seventh year, the end of the seven-year cycle, the stock market falls on the day of the of the of the of the appointed by God to crash is the is seven 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 points. How much how much was wiped out? How much percentage? Seven percent was wiped out. How many hours? It took seven hours to wipe it out. I mean, so much. And the one before it in two thousand one, right after September eleventh. Crashes, how much is wiped out? 7%. I mean, so absolutely, absolutely. And, and there's a whole thing we can go into, we won't, but, but that if you go back from that day of that crash, you go to the, the moment of that 777 appears on Wall Street. If you go back seven years from that 777, seven, seven years and seven days and seven hours, it brings you to the day of 9-11 to the hour of the attack. But we will not go into that. But, but um, the, the other thing is that, that, you know, we are now in the next one. It just began. The, the major part's going to be this coming year, 2015. So has there been any foreshadow at the beginning of what can, may, possibly take place as we head towards the end? Well, the interesting thing is, you know, the, the, the month, or actually the week of September 23rd to the 26th, 
from Monday to Friday. On that week, all of a sudden, Wall Street gets unhinged. It starts, it starts reeling. I mean, people start talking about, is this another, another crash from, that happened in 2007? But it bounced back. Yeah, it's back. It's back. But is it, with, with, with the same thing happened in 2007, what happened is you had a foreshadow right away. And then you had, it didn't look like something was going to happen, and then it happened at the end. So could there have been a foreshadow? Well, that, that reeling of the stock market, it, it went about for three weeks, began, it was destabilized, began the week that the Shemitah began. And it also, it also the greatest crash day was the day of the Shemitah on that thing. Now, another, another kind of mystery in the book, it's called The Mystery of the Towers, is that when towers, when, when a nation puts up these, the highest towers on earth, that's gen- often linked to the rise of that nation, or it can be linked when when a tower falls, can be linked to the fall of the nation. Well, the hubris, well, right? Yeah. Well, when America, you know, America put up the highest tower on earth for the first time, and it was it was the first great skyscraper in the world for the first time. The highest secular building was not in Europe, but was in America. It was 1871, 1870. The next year, America becomes the greatest economic power on earth. The next year, the tower marks the beginning of the Gilded Age of America. So it marks the rise of America. Well, America has been putting up the highest towers ever since. And, and so ever since, until just before 9-11, all of a sudden, America is surpassed by Asia. And then comes 9-11 when America's tower, representing, you know, the, the preeminence, the glory of America, crashes. Well, I've been warning, you know, for a, uh, quite a while with the Harbinger and with now with the Shemitah, but before that, the Harbinger, that one of the first signs that America doesn't get right, get back with God, one of the warnings of the Harbinger and the warning of the Shemitah is that its crown as the head of nations will be removed. And I've said it for a long time. Well, here's something. Within the first month of the Shemitah, that is September and October, first month of that Shemitah, America, the, the age of America from 1871, the age of America being the strongest economic power on earth, has come to an end. They were overtaken by China, that's right. That's right, and it happened just as the, as the Shemitah began, and, and it's the same nation that is now putting up higher towers than America, by the way. But, and, and that happened that the first week of the Shemitah, America was surpassed by Russia in its nuclear capability in its military. So you got the military, you have economic, and you have, I mean, the crown that America has worn. This is the beginning of the end of the American age as we know it. And remember, Richard, I showed this once, that the Shemitah, it literally in Hebrew, people take it as meaning the release, and it is the release, but Hebrew also means the collapse or the fall or the shaking. And it literally can speak also of, it means to let collapse. And on each of the, these days of the Shemitah, the last two, you literally had the letting collapse of America's economic you know, power. But now you're watching the literal, the, the, the American age begin to collapse. Now, it begins with the Shemitah, but then, then on top of that, you have something else on top of that, that on the actual day of the Shemitah, I, I said you had the greatest crash of that, of that that began this teetering of Wall Street for about three weeks. But then... You also had you also had an earthquake on that day well, over over six of the Richter scale on the day of the Shemitah. Could that be a foreshadow? And you, by the way, you know when we we talk about Ebola and this you know the plague and pestilence, the first sign of Ebola, and again we're just talking about foreshadows, happened on the day of the Shemitah. All this happened on the first day of the Shemitah. Every single one of them happened that same day. 
And the other thing is that the harbingers linked to this are continuing and continuing. One of the things is I've talked about is the tower, you know, because we mentioned that. And, you know, the, the tower, the World Trade Center, was, was conceived in the year of the Shemitah. It was begun, to, its construction in the year of the Shemitah. It took seven years. The seven years of the Shemitah was finished. It's 1973, year of the Shemitah, was destroyed in the year of the Shemitah. Well, this new tower was conceived in the year of the Shemitah, and it looks like it's going to be finished. It hasn't been dedicated yet. They opened its doors. It hasn't been dedicated in the year of the Shemitah. And I would keep my eyes on that tower. And number one, it's one of the four, it's one of the nine harbingers in the in the harbinger, and there's been so much attached to that, linked to this warning of judgment. It's not a good sign. You know, the president of the United States actually inscribed on that tower uh, the, the paraphrase of Isaiah 9:10, which is the pronouncement of judgment on the nation. That's the harbinger scripture. It's on the top floor of that tower. And that tower, I don't know if you heard it, just about, yes. it was a week ago or two weeks ago, the story came out that that, that tower is over, is now overrun with rats. Not a good sign. You know, it happened just, just, just as that, that thing there. But the, the, the other thing is that, you know, the, the Shemitah is, you know, it, it always leads to the finale. Now, when is the finale going to take place? And again, I'm not, I'm not saying it has to happen, but your, your listeners should know that the, the day of, of wipeout comes, it's Elul 29, is September 13th of 2015. And on that day, you know, one of the signs in the Bible of, of judgment, I'm not saying every time, but one of the signs is that of the darkening of the sun. It's, you can see it in the prophets. Well, the day of September 13th will also be the darkening of the sun, will be a solar eclipse. And the last time there was a solar eclipse on a Louis 29, the day of the Shemitah, the wipeout day, that you had the greatest, it led into the greatest collapse in Wall Street history percentage-wise, which was Black Monday, 1987. And now, and now it's happening again. But I would, I would, I would be prepared, is what I was saying. That I believe a great shaking. I'll say, regardless of time, a great shaking is coming to America and the world. And I believe this shaking will affect the financial realm, will affect the the economic realm, and will be greater than any of those realms. And there may even be an event that triggers it, as with 9/11. And and it's interesting because September 13th this year is not on the stock market day. It's it's a it's a Sunday. So we would seem to point if there is something to happen, then that it would be something even beyond the economic realm. But regardless of whether it happens at this at this wipeout time of the Shemitah or happens after that, I believe very strongly, and this is the warnings of the harbingers, which are still continuing to come true, and the Shemitah, that a great shaking is coming and we need to be ready. Jonathan, uh, where can people get, again, um, more information on the mystery of the Shemitah and the harbinger? The, the mystery of the Shemitah is available everywhere, and the Harbinger, everywhere where books are. They can get online from Amazon or, or offline, you know, Walmart, everywhere. Everywhere there are books, online or off, you can get the Harbinger and the mystery of the Shemitah. Jonathan, uh, always a pleasure and uh, a very blessed Merry Christmas to you. You too, Richard. God bless you. Jonathan Kahn. My website, richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home and between your ears. Merry Christmas to all of you listening in on our flagship station, AM740 Zoomer Radio here in Toronto. And again, all of you listening in on the the podcast. Also to the live stream at zoomerradio.ca or talkzone.com. And of course, all of you listening in on one of our growing list of U.S. affiliates. 
Again, my wish to you and yours, a blessed Christmas and a happy Hanukkah and a peaceful, healthy, prosperous new year. Uh, Once again, we're doing another HOA Hangout on Air. And if you want to join the Hangout, uh, just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett. And while you're there, you can follow me, say hi. But if you go to the first, uh, first or second tweets from the top, you'll find the link for our live YouTube stream. Uh, and then you can listen and watch the program at the same time. You can even check out my new haircut. <laughs> Give me a thumbs up or thumbs down. Uh, I'm also wearing my uh, a festive T-shirt. <laughs> well, not really. It's, uh, it's, it's black and it's, well, uh, a few James Bond uh, fans, you'll understand. It's a Spectre on it and it has the, the symbol of Spectre, the octopus. Can they see that? Albert, my, tech, my story producer, lower the camera there. That's my Spectre T-shirt. All right. If you can tell me what uh, Spectre stands for. Uh, there's no prize. I just, you know, congratulations. <laughs> you can drop me a line at theconspiracyshow1 at gmail.com. What does Spectre stand for? There's a new James Bond film being uh, made as we speak. Uh, Daniel Craig returning as uh, James Bond, and uh, the name of it is Spectre. So I'm wearing this uh, not-so-festive T-shirt, uh, I guess, in uh, commemoration of the new James Bond film. All right. Uh, I wanted to mention that towards the tail end of the program, I mean right near the finish line, just before we dim the lights, our media science contributor Nelson Thaw will be here for a very quick call uh, to give us uh, a few insights into this whole Sony Pictures computer hacking story involving the North Koreans, or so we're led to believe. Um, We're led to believe that it's the North Koreans that are doing this, but we'll find out what Nelson makes of all of this. That's later in the hour. Uh, I know many of you are uh, all hunkering down for the Christmas season and you're starting to slow things down. Uh, but the conspiracy show doesn't stop for Christmas. And this hour, well, admittedly, it has very little to do with Christmas. Although my uh, technical producer, Tim Spreen, is going to spin a few of my holiday favorites just to keep us in the mood. But where we're headed in the next 45 minutes or so, it, well, about it's about as far as Christmas as you can get. It has to do with uh, some recently uncovered information regarding the Nazis and anti-gravitic technology. Uh, now, many of you are no doubt familiar with the, the legend of the Nazi bell, which was uh, purported to be a top-secret Nazi scientific uh, technological device, secret weapon, uh, or Wunderwaffe. Uh, author uh, Joseph Farrell, who is a, a great friend of this program, has written about it extensively, the Nazi bell, and it's associated with Nazi occultism and anti-gravity and free energy. Uh, now, here with the latest on this fascinating secret chapter in history is George Freund, who has uh, previously hosted his own popular talk show on that channel, delving into such issues as the debt crisis, 9-11, uh, uh, secret uh, weather weapons, all things hidden. And uh, his also popular podcast was known as the Conspiracy Cafe, an alternative media forum that challenges popular opinion with difficult truths. And as a student with a passion for the intelligence history of the world, events can be applied to those students with a pa- sorry, uh, can be applied to those dictums. Those who don't know their history are condemned to repeat it. If there's anything learned from history, it's people learning nothing from history. George Freund, how are you? Merry Christmas, my friend. And Merry Christmas to you. Actually, listening to your previous guest, the 777, I saw that in the window of the Sydney coffee shop. That was a giant close-up, went around the world. So I don't know, there was some predictive programming going on there by the powers-to-be to tell us that the Shemitah is in play. Ah, interesting. 
I was looking at the numbers. It was got to have some significance, and uh, I'm glad he enlightened us into into that because that is the significance. Let's let's talk about. I, I received this. Um, um, it's not entirely cryptic, but it, it certainly you know grabbed my attention. This email from you that you just un, you know recently uncovered information regarding. Uh, you know, Nazi secret technology and uh, secret weapons and so forth that they were developing even before the Second World War. Uh, tell us about how this all this this evolved. Well, accidentally, I was just looking for a video to put on uh, my website about sunken German submarines, and I stumbled across uh, a link that said one was sunk off the coast of New Zealand. <laughs> I was just flabbergasted because I never heard about that before. That was the U-196. So right, right. Allegedly, it was found in 1981, and uh, everyone was aghast. Like, you know, where did the crew go? What happened? And slowly it was pieced together that the crew was taken ashore and instantly assimilated into society and uh, allowed to ultimately get status in New Zealand. And they had a cargo, and that cargo involved nuclear technology, and uh, the ability to process nuclear technology so the British could make their own bomb because they weren't getting much help from uh, the Americans with uh, their captured Operation Paperclip uh, Nazis. So everybody was competing for everything all at the same time, the French, the British, the Russians, and the Americans, and uh, because they had access to get at these bells, and pretty much uh, each one of these countries did. So near the end of the war, Germany surrendered on uh, May the 8th, 1945, and they sent the... uh, The German army did, but the Nazis never did. They never did, and, uh, you know, I would argue today that uh, we can follow this right to the White House today. That's how uh, bizarre uh, this story can be. Wow. Well, let's. You mentioned the the, uh, U-196, and and this was... These were long-range U-boats. Um, as you say, one was was sunk off the coast of New Zealand. Now, was there not another one sent uh, to New York Harbor uh, in something like May of 1945? And they also that was also carrying weapons grade uranium. Uh, yes, it was. That was U-234. It was supposed to go to Japan, and then with the war closing in, that was one of the deals that got a lot of the really high level Nazis off the hook. Is you had to have something to trade for anonymity and freedom, and nuclear weapons is the ultimate one. And even, uh, you know, if you look back with 2020 hindsight to say who got off, if an evil power got a hold of these weapons and had mastery of them, or someone who would want to be an evil power, it's over. The the world is uh, going to be completely changed, and uh, the highest levels of the Third Reich could sell that, for their freedom to say, you let me go, and we'll give you technology. So, in other words, uh, Hitler's successor, um, this admiral, ordered all of these secret sub- the secret submarine flotilla to sail to all these designated enemy ports. One was in, in New Zealand. One ended up being in New York Harbor, but you say that was en route to Japan. And in exchange for this nuclear material on board, Germany gained its sort of continued participation in any post-war nuclear weapons programs? Oh, very much so. The Americans were having a lot of trouble putting the nuclear bomb together. A lot of trouble. And when U-234 came in, it was just a matter of weeks before they started to, to really get it rolling. One, they had the uranium. Two, they had the triggers, the detonators to get the bomb going. 
and the head of security for the Manhattan Project just flipped when uh, he saw the treasure trove that came with this submarine, as well as technical advice. And uh, that's what really made the American nuclear bomb work. And U-234 uh, was one of the submarines. Uh, there was, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Humphrey Bogart film, the Across the Pacific movie. That was just a, a classic bogey I movie. I haven't seen that one, no. There's a secret base that the Japanese are supposed to have around the Panama Canal and all the Nazis and fascist agents and such get around there. And, of course, Bogart goes in and cleans it out. But there was a real one, and it was in Indonesia. It was on a tea plantation, and it belonged to uh, two brothers, Emil and Theodore Helfrich. And uh, Mr. Helfrich was the CEO of Hamburg America Line. He was also CEO of ESSO which was owned by Standard Oil at the time. Mm -hmm. And he was the one who told Hindenburg that you've got to put Hitler in power. He was uh, also friends of, uh, they call it the friends of this friendship circle of Himmler. He was a member of that along with Haljmar Schack, the banker, and the people from uh, the Abernabi, the people that went to Tibet and Antarctica, the far-off places to look for uh, secret technology and uh, to be able to get into the inner earth theory of the world and portals right, right. and such like that. What, what about this, this base uh, that was uh, the submarine, Nazi submarine base in uh, the Antarctic? Well, that's where it leads to ultimately. From Indonesia, Unit 196 sailed. It was written off because it didn't report in around December the 1st, 1944, and they just said it was lost at sea, but no one's ever discovered the wreck, or it was just because it didn't report in, it was written off. And ultimately, it sailed uh, into the waters of New Zealand. There's other reports as well that previously it was carrying gold. That's what the uh, Germans and Japanese would trade, science and technology for uh, gold, because Germany was in a financial crisis, not having any foreign currency reserves to buy things and support its country. So these special submarines were designed, they were the 9CD types larger, they were cleaned out of weapons, their, their job was to just basically be an underwater freighter and carry the technology and the, and the basically assets, the gold assets around the world. Right, all the Nazi plunder, I mean, and, uh, uh, priceless works of art and gold and silver and unimaginable wealth. So, so it, this was all stored somewhere in, an, in, in the Antarctic, is that the idea? Ultimately, that's where it went to. Uh, the, the, the story of the Antarctic is just absolutely bizarre, and you're probably familiar with uh, Operation High Jump, where Admiral Byrd, after the war, basically did an invasion of Antarctica coming from three directions with an aircraft carrier task force, allegedly just to go looking for uh, you know some sort of mapping expedition. But none of the vessels he was taking, there, there isn't much you could do with an American uh, combat submarine, some destroyers. They, re they really aren't uh, exploration vehicles. And the storyline is, is that they invaded Antarctica looking for this Nazi redoubt and any advanced civilizations or technologies that may exist. And I sent you a movie that was found in the... Uh, an antique store in Germany, something that just slipped through, that wasn't ever uh, accumulated or destroyed. It was the German expedition to go to Antarctica, and it's just absolutely stunning to watch this movie. It's a silent film, and uh, it, it just details in, in every little way 
what was found there. So All right, it's George. The Deutsche Antarctic Expedition of 1938. All right, George, uh, hold on. We'll take a time out. We'll come back as Willie Nelson takes us into the break with pretty paper. Uh, we'll continue to discuss Nazi secret technology, secret weaponry, and the Nazi bell with George Freund, independent researcher, broadcaster, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. George Freund is with us. Uh, and uh, uh, George was, uh, for a number of years, the host of a very popular uh, podcast, uh, Conspir- The Conspiracy Cafe. Is that still going, George? Yes, I just do it from home now because the technology exists that, uh, you know, I just record things at home and post them on my website, and it saves me trucking down to the studio. But, uh, you know, we still have a massive following, and, uh, you know, people just beg me to keep going because I do things that nobody else will do, like take the bull by the horns and uh, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. There's a lot of things that need to be said, and a lot of people just aren't prepared to say it, and once you get used to taking the, uh, the Kool-Aid, you can't get off it. Now, we were talking about this nuclear technology that the Germans, the Nazis, possessed. And after Hitler's death in the dying days of the Second World War, at least the Second World War in Europe, Hitler's appointed successor, this admiral, ordered this flotilla of long-range subs that were loaded with this nuclear technology to to sail off to these designated ports, enemy ports, really, New Zealand, New York, perhaps en route to Japan. What specifically then, we're talking about weapons-grade plutonium, I guess, here. So the takeaway here is what? That the Germans were just... Very close, so uh, like a, within a hair's width of developing the bomb before the Americans. I believe so. I think they were, uh, you know, to the point, you know, you, you could be getting to uh, a matter of days. There might just been uh, some Germans on the inside realizing it would probably be better to give it to the Americans overall than uh, to let uh, the enemy side take it. What the Germans really did with this bell is the bell was a heavy particle accelerator. Yeah, we need to talk about the Nazi bell. And what it did is it create, it uh, was a source for creating some artificial neutrons for an element called protactinium-233, and it was made from thorium-232. And when you use this bell, which is just two bells inside each other that spin at a very high rate of speed in opposite directions and create a vacuum inside, and mercury would be put inside with thorium gas. And this would, uh, you know, basically, without using a nuclear reactor, create a fissionable material that you could have, bomb-grade material, by using thorium and turning it into uranium. In 27 days, this uh, new new to me, but protactinium-233 would change into uranium-233. And uh, it was an electrical device, sort of using Tesla technology to pump in close to 5 million volts into this device with the, uh, you know, what's termed red mercury, this gas in between. And it's supposed to have very bizarre effects. It had a, uh, it was a ceramic bell, this bell, and it would glow like a ultraviolet color when it was in full operation. And, uh, you know, that just must be stunning to imagine. And it was made from ceramics. It had a beryllium mirror on it to reflect the neutrons back in so that, uh, I guess, you don't lose any energy out of it. And people said when you looked at this 
concave mirror that you would actually see like back in time that it was uh, you know such a, a bizarre encounter uh, these details did come out in the uh, Nuremberg trials one of the head Gestapo generals who was in charge of this program uh, talked uh, quite a bit about this and other German scientists were taped at a British university while they were you know in quasi custody working for them that they had this ability to create fissionable materials without using nuclear reactors and this has been shut up and uh, and basically taken away from history another place one of these bells went was to Argentina so uh, there was a liaison with the Chilean Navy which is just so close to Argentina where the one of these submarines came ashore and uh, it's it's quite common knowledge I think it was dr. Richter the man who invented the uh, the, the Richter scale who brought a bell into Argentina it was used and the Americans went after uh, mr. Juan Perón viciously to try to get control of that technology and shut them down and uh, Argentina was not in the good books through that period of time because these weapons were so powerful the uh, the whole concept even of red mercury as I was doing research into that is it has been patented by DuPont they make a liquid explosive, HG2SB207, a military uh, code name uh, for, the, uh, for this explosive that's just, it's almost as powerful as a nuclear weapon. Is that Zerum 525? Well, the, uh, the Zerum 525 is the uh, material they put inside the two rotating spheres. So there's a paraffin material. There is a uh, plasma created from the mercury and the thorium vapors. And uh, that whole Armaga- uh, you know, piece is called the Xerom 525. And uh, that acts as a means of creating free neutrons to bombard the thorium-232 and turn it into this protactinium. So you, you, you mentioned the, some of the strange effects that were produced by the, the Nazi bell. First of all, how, how many Nazi bells were in existence or are in existence? Do we know? The best I can come up with, uh, you know, from one of the best research articles I found, is they could uh, determine there were four. But uh, there very, very well may have been more. The uh, Russians got one by working with a uh, another chap and on one of the other German scientists and uh, they made their own but uh, there were four altogether that you know one for the French one for the Americans one for the British and uh, you know this is uh, using the uh, centrifuge method the Americans weren't getting anywhere and we can see in the modern era that the Iranians aren't really getting anywhere using the centrifuge either and uh, this technology was so advanced and it's still hush hush up today so this is like the, the shortcut of just making your, your fissionable materials to make your weapons. And that might, it had to be used underground, too, because it gave off a, a massive amount of X-ray radiation. Right. Yeah, and there were a number of unnamed uh, scientists, apparently, Nazi scientists, who, who died. Uh, yes. And, and um, according to, to Joseph Farrell and others, the Nazis ended up uh, a killing 60 scientists, Nazi scientists that were associated with the program, and then they buried them in a mass grave just to keep – it sort of almost mirrors the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the death list of all these microbiologists going around the world. Correct. So you know, Hitler was a sore loser, to say the least. And uh, you know, one of the important things about this base 
in Indonesia is. There's a book out called Ratline, Soviet Spies, Nazi Priests. And uh, this is probably one of the, you know, one of the books you read that your eyeballs pop out of your head because uh, he alleges ultimately that Hitler was transferred to Indonesia and lived in the vicinity of this base and uh, that he died there. And that's a very significant and very important piece of information. And I have quite a blog on my website about that because we all know there was a certain president who was documented to live in Indonesia and be possibly born in Indonesia. And there was a great deal of controversy about where he was born. And uh, his mother worked for U.S. aid, and a doctor on a U.S. aid ship called the SS Hope is the man who said that he saw Hitler in his old age in the early 1960s when he was working on that ship as a uh, charity doctor. And uh, let me get his name there, Dr. Sosto Husada. Well, that's interesting because recently declassified FBI files uh, seem to strongly uh, suggest that uh, Hitler did survive the Second World War and uh, perhaps uh, lived in in Argentina. Uh, But you're saying Indonesia. Maybe that's just a smokescreen. Well, that was a transshipment point. First it was Argentina and then ultimately in, uh, you know, the latter years, Indonesia. And uh, like I say, it's just very, very interesting that the, the most controversial president we have about uh, ident- uh, you know, having identification to say, like, if I wanted to clean in the White House, I'm going to need lots of pieces of ID, and they're going to have to stand up. And, uh, you know, Barry Satoros just don't. And a, a lot of the things, uh, you know, seem to be uh, finagled. So the fact that his mother is working in the same area where allegedly Mr. Hitler was, on a ship called Hope, his campaign uh, slogan and promise, Hope, is Interesting. just absolutely Interesting. mind-boggling that uh, we have him there. And, uh, you know, I would say that uh, if he was a Manchurian-style president, he may have been very well put together to take that office on purpose to lead America down a darker trail. You talked about, uh, you know, these buildings with your previous guest about the World Trade Center and the towers. China has made a replica city of Manhattan, you know, era 2001. They've rebuilt the World Trade Centers in this replica. It's an exact scale model. And uh, so the World Trade Centers are standing in China right now. And, you know, that's just an eerie, eerie significance to the Shemitah coming along yes. and uh, the significance of, uh, of these towers in the banking empire or the survivor of the Shemitah maybe being China because they seem to be in the strongest position holding the American debt. George Freund is with us, the host of Conspiracy Cafe, independent researcher, and we're talking about uh, secret Nazi secret weapons. Now, let's get back to the Nazi bell for a moment uh, and these strange effects. And you mentioned, you hinted that uh, when uh, people peered into the uh, into the Nazi bell, it they almost it's like they got a glimpse of the past. So, what are we saying here that the, this thing was capable of uh, producing a time travel effect? It's like opening a portal or a window. We can only speculate because, you know, we can't see this. We can only just listen to second-hand observations. But we're dealing with powers that are, are so great that, you know, almost anything is possible. And just to give you an example of how important Antarctica is as a base, like I don't know if you're familiar with the fact 
that uh, there was an expedition there in 2007 by someone who you probably know very, very well, not personally, but just by reputation, is, uh, you know, Mr. Paul Allen from Microsoft. Ah, yes. Now, he bought a hundred, several hundred million dollar yacht and then automatically decided not to use it and built another one called the Octopus. And the octopus is 416 feet long, and its bottom comes open, just like you'd see in the James Bond film. And he's got a hundred, several hundred million dollar submarine that holds 10 people that comes out of the bottom. And he went on an expedition to Antarctica in 2007 with a private security force of former Navy SEALs for protection to, you know, who knows what, but... You could rent your own ship probably very cheaply right. <laughs> compared to building the octopus. I'm just it's, – it's fascinating you mentioned the octopus for, because and for no particular reason tonight I decided to don my, my Spectre T-shirt, which of course has the octopus on it. I don't know if people at home can see this on the, uh, on the webcam on our Hangout. Oh, and incidentally, I should mention, George, uh, your webcam is uh, – it's not operating. We can't see you. Okay, well, uh, I can see me, so it's, oh. you know, I'm there, and then the streaming going out on my Internet I can look at is I'm, uh, you know, Excellent. pushing up a lot of speed here, so why it's not getting out there I can't understand. And well, maybe it's maybe it's just on our end we're not seeing you, so hopefully it is getting out there. Uh, in any event, I just I thought that was an interesting <laughs> little uh, serendipity there that I'd be wearing the, the Spectre T-shirt. All right, so, uh, any, so any idea, do you want to speculate as to what Alan was looking for? I mean, is there still... Um, a Nazi plunder, or or some, is there a Nazi bell in in this in the Antarctic? I wouldn't be the slightest bit surprised that there was a base. They called it Base Two Eleven in this film from 1938. And when you look at the pictures of this base, it is just mind-boggling that these were actual film footage of things they did there. Like they had tunnels going underground that looked like you could take the subway down. Right. And uh, so, do these things still exist in present time? The conspiracy word that you're not afraid to use and the one I haven't been afraid to use is I take power from it because I, I use it as a joke when some global TV reporters were teasing me once, coming home a bit drunk, uh, you know, talking about uh, the conspiracy word. And I said, well, you know what the first conspiracy was, don't you? And they just, you know, looked at me and I said, the world is round. <laughs> that was the first conspiracy. And anyone who thought it was round was wacko and every the church and the state were pretty much telling you it's flat it has to be flat and when we get into advanced civilizations or maybe ancient civilizations if there's something under the antarctic ice and many people say they are the russians captured german top secret documents showing the inner earth in map form and access points and i have a, a russian documentary on my website if you just Type in uh, in the search engine in the video section Antarctica. You'll see them all. I have you know Admiral the Hollow Earth video, the Russian video. Well, you mentioned Admiral Byrd earlier, and and of course uh, Admiral Byrd, according to this uh, legendary journal, and some say that this is this story is is, is apocryphal that no such journal exists. But Byrd talks about uh, catching a glimpse of an opening uh, as he flew over the South Pole, suddenly looking down and seeing this verdant. Landscape almost tropical, uh, which he flew into, uh, you know, again in the middle of where there should be nothing but ice and snow, and saw a tropical fauna, flora, and and uh, um, creatures, strange creatures, and so forth. So that's quite correct. And in the South American press at the time, he said there were flying saucers there. 
Well, I, I want to ask you this, and we're coming up on a break, George, but I, I want to talk about the connection between the Nazi bell and anti-gravity and Nazi flying saucers, Nazi UFOs. Would you be good for that? Sure. George Freund joins us from Conspiracy Cafe. And just a reminder, coming up a little bit later, we'll talk about the Sony Pictures North Korean uh, computer hacking story from our media scientist friend Nelson Thal. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show, our Christmas edition. Stay with us. Uh, Welcome back. And just a reminder, we are doing another one of our Hangouts on Air, HOAs. And if you go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, uh, right near the top of the feed is the link. You just click on that. And I'm not sure if you're able to see George Freund, our guest uh, from the Conspiracy Cafe. Uh, You can uh, see me and my new haircut, (laughs) if you'd like. Uh, Anyway, we're still in the early stages of developing the HOA, and we we, we wish to uh, continue to do these. Uh, If you'd like to give us a... uh, uh, a comment or two about how you're enjoying the HOA, just uh, send us an email. It's theconspiracyshow1 at gmail.com. Theconspiracyshow1 at gmail.com. Uh, in fact, if you just would like to email us on any matter, that, w- that would be a great way uh, to contact us. Theconspiracyshow, the numeral one, at gmail.com. George Freund is with us talking about the Nazi bell, anti-gravitics, uh, secret uh, weaponry that the Nazis possessed. Uh, just a reminder, coming up near the top of the hour, Nelson Thal, our media scientist friend, will be with us uh, to share some interesting uh, details, an interesting angle on this whole Sony Pictures North Korea computer hacking story. It may not be what it appears, but then again, what is? Uh, George, I'm wondering, what is the connection, do you uh, suppose, uh, between this Nazi bell technology uh, that the Germans apparently were using to enrich uh, nuclear uh, material? Uh, What is the connection between the Nazi bell and, you know, these stories of uh, Foo Fighters that uh, Allied uh, pilots encountered uh, what we now call you know flying saucers or UFOs. Back then, they referred to them as Foo Fighters uh, because it's, it, the timing is interesting. Um, you know, 1947, of course, just after the war, we have uh, we have Roswell, uh, and some contend there are, there are those who suggest that what the uh, Jim Mars, I believe, among them, that what the uh, what was actually shot down near Corona, New Mexico, was not an extraterrestrial craft. It was a Nazi craft. But how do you tell the American people, the public, you know, that, that they're still engaged in a war against the Nazis when the war wrapped up two years ago? And then, of course, you have the Kenneth Arnold flying saucer uh, sightings in 1947. So is, what is the connection between the Nazi bell, Foo Fighters, UFOs? Well, if they did have a base there and... Some of the reference material that's coming out now is there were uh, a, a people there who had Germanic appearance, spoke German, but seemed to be very, very far advanced technologically compared to the rest of us, and that they were operating these craft. And uh, there was research in Germany with basically the typical disc shape of aircraft using something called the Coanda effect, where uh, you know, hot vapor or air is pushed along the outside of the craft, goes underneath and gives it lift. We used to have a, an experimental craft here in Malton uh, in our own aircraft industry post-war playing with that. The, the craft would get up from the ground, but it was hardly anything that could travel like uh, Admiral Byrd said. He was quoted in the various South American press that this thing could go pole to pole in minutes and that he was concerned uh, of a potential attack on the United States. 
And uh, so he took this very, very seriously. And, uh, you know, he there was also a component to say that there is an alien race as well that had this type of technology, but definitely a Germanic-speaking people. So if this bell did have a potential for something to do with time, could these Germanic, Earth-like looking people have been someone from the future with, uh, you know, advanced technologies or something along that line? This, this story just gets weirder and weirder, doesn't it? Well, when we look at what happened back in the time, is Admiral Byrd, after his second operation, Operation Deep Freeze, died. And there's a lot of people who thought he was murdered. And, uh, you know, worse than, uh, than that is James Forrestal, the Secretary of Defense, was most definitely murdered. So they wrote him off as a suicide. He was uh, said to be nuts because he started talking about what we're talking about. Well, they, they, they slipped him some LSD, I believe, and threw him out of a, they an office. They threw him out the window. Right. He was in the presidential suite at Bethesda Naval Hospital. His family had uh, told him uh, you know, what was uh, to try to get him out. He was on the eve of the day where a court order was to have him released. He was, of course, committed without his consent. And his uh, family got him out, and on that evening, uh, he was approached by, I guess, the big burly guys that uh, look after you in these places. And what I found from an old newspaper article was there were scratch marks on the windowsill. Well, if you're jumping out, you just jump. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's no scratch marks. That's right. If so- somebody's throwing you out, there's going to be scratch marks. So the fact that he had the information about the top-end weapon systems and the ability of, uh, you know, whatever these uh, spacecraft are, and the fact that he was losing it and he wasn't going to keep it a secret anymore, his, his life was over. He was taken out. Yes, they right. named an aircraft carrier after him later, but uh, he's gone, and so, so is Bird. This suggests that, I mean, we've heard tales of this huge tract of land in Argentina that was was purchased by essentially the what, what uh, Joseph Farrell calls the Nazi Internationale. Uh, this huge conglomerate. Uh, again, the Nazis didn't lose the war. Uh, the German army surrendered. The Nazis never did. Uh, and so they simply moved their base of operation from Germany uh, to wherever. Um, so, I mean, this is 70 years ago, this, this technology, the Nazi bell. Uh, yeah, one of the first about. patents or works on uh, this material you know, was starting in 1922. They, they were just so far and away advanced compared to everybody else. I don't know, you're familiar with the Rosenbergs? Yes. Okay, this is one of the little footnotes in this article I was looking at. The most spectacular legal case of the 20th century, the atomic espionage trials. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg spoke of warships of space. Ah, interesting. To go that far back, and what we think are, you know, basically a little bit advanced from the horse and buggy days. To see people persecuted with this knowledge, because it was just, you're walking into a kangaroo court where you're going to be executed, and most likely for the knowledge that you possess. Right. Warships of space, yeah. And then we move ahead 80 years, and now we have Gary McKinnon uh, in England, of course, hacking into Pentagon uh, computers and talking about this secret space program. It's all starting to line up. Uh, We'll... uh, Stay connected here with George Freund here for a few moments yet. And then, as, as I say, coming up a little bit later in the hour, 
Nelson Thal, our media scientist, talking about the uh, Sony Pictures North Korea computer hacking story, not what it appears. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Uh, George Freund from Conspiracy Cafe stays with us for a few moments uh, yet. Now, George, you mentioned that uh, uh, you felt like a kid in the candy store, sort of uncovering this information, that it it just seemed to be available online, and then it was almost as quickly taken down. What do you mean by that? Well, what happened to me was uh, when I first found these articles from a New Zealand newspaper about the U-196, you know, I saved everything. I stayed up late, copied it all, saved all the pictures and images, and then, you know, kept the links, and then when I went to open them the next day, they were gone. (laughs) And I was just flabbergasted to say, well, hey, that was fast. But, uh, you know, they have been restored, it appears, but uh, when I went the next day, they were gone. Interesting. Now, let me throw something else at you, Uh, and that is, uh, we're all familiar with the legend of the Philadelphia Experiment and the USS Eldridge. Uh, where some suggested that there was a bit of um, uh, time travel involved there, that some sort of uh, Tesla coil that was uh, uh, mounted on this uh, this naval... Uh, it wasn't a destroyer. It was, uh, it was um, uh, the kind of a, a ship that would accompany a, a naval destroyer. Uh, but it was it suddenly sort of blipped in and out of uh, reality. Uh, do you think there's a connection there with the Nazi bell? Could there have been a Nazi bell on board the USS Eldridge? Well, what, as I understand it, they did is they put large copper coils around it and synthesized basically a, Tesla, a massive Tesla coil. There could have been a bell on the inside, but, you know, there, we can only speculate about that. And that's what caused this, uh, this rupture in time and space to have it move. And, of course, they hide everything. One of the large UFO incidents that goes back to 1965 that fits the Bell scenario is the Kecksburg UFO incident. Uh, in Pennsylvania, yes. And uh, so they call it an acorn, but uh, it bears a great deal of significance to the, the shape and design of, of this Bell. And that's one of the other theories that comes out of uh, the Flat Earth Society is that these things were craft as well, that they, they could be, you know, with that type of power. Uh, with these spinning things to be anti-gravity or or something that can lift up and fly and move very quickly, the way Admiral Byrd said, you know, that that would be child's play to people who master this technology. I just uh, recalled something, and I'll have to go back and verify this, but it seems to me that uh, the the Betty and Barney Hill abduction uh, story, uh, and they were sort of the first prominent uh, individuals to talk openly about an alien abduction, it seems to me either Betty or Barney mentioned... Uh, that while they were aboard this craft, they seem to recall seeing Nazis. Does that ring a bell with you? No yeah. pun intended. That's a that's a common uh, a common statement from people who claim abduction that they were German speaking people or you know implied Nazis, and it just doesn't fit in with uh, you know the alien presence. But uh, that comes up over and over and over again that we have two very distinct. Uh, you know, types of people occupying craft like that, the typical alien, obviously alien-type person, and then someone who looks just like us and speaks German, but is just remarkably advanced uh, technologically. 
this Nancy Bell again, the technology, uh, you know, 70, 80 years old. Think of what they have now. I mean, when I say they, I don't even know who I mean. The Nazi International, the, whoever you want to call them, the, you know, the, the, uh, the elite, the oligarchs, the unelected oligarchs, the, uh, the Bilderbergs, whatever you want to call them. This break, they, as Richard Dolan says, they, they, they constitute a breakaway civilization uh, because they have this technology at their disposal. But imagine the Nazi Bell plus 80 years. Yes. One of the big things the uh, ultra-rich are getting into for private yachts are submarines. So a company that makes these high-end submarines for them, and they're hundreds of millions of dollars. They're hardly toys. Uh, you know, back when I looked into the 2007 trip with Mr. Allen, they sold a hundred of them. Remarkable. Remarkable. So, you know, the billionaire yacht club is doing quite well. The, one of the patents for uh, this, this what they call vortex tube and the patent of the Verbell Roar uh, Bell was in 1935. And, uh, you know, Professor Max Steenbeck, Swiss scientist Dr. Walter Dahlenbach, and uh, it was Steenbeck who worked with the Soviets to create their bell, which was called Tokamak. And then a 1934 Hungarian scientist, Leo Slezard, he patented something very similar as well, because you're turning one element into another element by creating a, uh, a mercury plasma with thorium. It's alchemy at its worst. Uh, George, always a pleasure. Keep doing what you're doing. We really appreciate your work, and it's always a delight having you on the program. And uh, people, uh, again, the website, George? Uh, www.conspiracy-cafe.com, or just Google my name. I'm everywhere where it uh, comes up. Get more hits than the Prime Minister. And uh, I can sleep nights. <laughs> All right, George. Merry Christmas. You too, my friend. Bye-bye. George, George Freud. All right. Uh, it's been four weeks since hackers calling themselves Guardians of Peace uh, began their cyber terrorism campaign against Sony Pictures Entertainment. In that time, thousands of executive emails and other documents have been posted online. Employees and their families were threatened, and unreleased films were reportedly stolen and made available for illegal download. And of course, uh, the uh, the film, which uh, supposedly cost somewhere in the order of $75 million, that would be the interview, uh, where two sort of unlikely candidates are recruited by uh, U.S. intelligence, their mission to assassinate North Korea's president, uh, Kim Il-jun. And uh, we're hearing now that that's not what happened. The North Koreans are not behind uh, this entertainment hack, and at least that's the uh, the take of our media scientist friend Nelson Thal, who joins us now. Hello, Nelson. Good. How are you doing, Richard? I'm well. I'm well. So, uh, what do you hear? What do you know? The North Koreans not at, at all responsible for this hack? You know, I think that um, we remember we start from the fact that we're standing on the shoulders of giants, and you know, all the media scientists understand that events are well scripted and designed for desirable effects. And we call that state psyops, and that's the name of the Twitter. Isn't that right, Richard? Yeah, yes, we should mention there's a, uh, there's a, a button on the uh, richardserrett.com, state psyops, and uh, uh, for, that's Nelson's... propaganda enthusiast. All right. So, so there's a what, lot what, of what stinks here. as far as the story? Yeah, what, what, what doesn't sit well with you? The, the official line is that uh, evil North Korea. I mean, there's no question that... <laughs> well, I listened to the CEO of Linton today, and when you look at what he said, he, they were just not 
uh, plausible. Uh, he said that the C he, um, CNN that uh, he had spoken to the U.S. government and to think tanks as well that work with the U.S. government, and he said that the, he asked them if doing a movie about the assassination of the head of state would be a problem or cause a threat, and he said that the U.S. government and the think tank said no. <laughs> So I mean, what are you on, saying, that they were goaded into this? Would you, would you have any, – any think tank that I've ever been involved in and would say, hey, you're doing a movie about the assassination of the Korean leader. That's going to cause some problems. Well, and let's I face it. Kim Jong-un is – Kim Jong-un is not the most stable uh, of individuals. So, I mean, yeah. it stands to reason that if you were to make a film about assassinating someone like Kim Jong-un, he's going to react. But so... Oh, you... Well, Rich, Rich, remember this. In, uh, on November the 19th, uh, Route 66, an episode of the popular TV show went uh, aired in prime time. The episode was called I'm Here to Kill a King. Okay. And it was dealt with the political assassination. November 19th, Route 66, I'm here to kill a king. So some Remember preemptive it starred, programming. It starred Mar yeah, the, the episode was pro produced well in advance of the Kennedy assassination and, have, have, and uh, quarters believing it was part of a predictive, predictive programming program. operation. Yes, right. Right, right. Now, let's keep in mind that the movie Manchurian Candidate, based on the 62 novel, with, was, with the same title, was about a former Korean POW named Raymond Shaw who was brainwashed during his captivity by communist agents. The Soviets and Chinese programmed Shaw to assassinate a presidential candidate. Uh, do I have to go into what the obvious is? There, experts on the CIA's MK Ultra mind control program see similarities between Shaw character and the Oswald character, both military veterans. So there's a lot of. If you, you're say, you're they, saying that Nelson, that the, this movie, the interview, is predictive programming, and that uh, the, that we're we're being set up for some sort of a false flag, which could involve the assassination of a president. Well, God according for to hacked emails from Sony Picture execs, a scene where Kim Jong Un is hit by a tank shell, scattering brain matter, skull fragments, and burnt flesh and hair in all directions was approved by the U.S. State Department Special Envoy for Human Rights, Ambassador Robert King, and an unnamed, quote, very senior, unquote, official in the State Department. So apparently the CIA's use of Hollywood for its psychological warfare, predictive programming, and soft power projection operations is as strong as it ever was in the past. That's for sure we can say. Now, what about this claim that Sony said that their their uh, seventy five million uh, that they lost by not screening uh, uh, the interview uh, was would be covered by insurance? You said there's a problem with that. That doesn't ring well, true. Exactly. Um, he says that he had insurance to cover the financial loss here, but all insurance contracts contained uh, exemptions for acts of God and acts of war. And I'm sh and as you and I both know we've studied the the one of the ways of finding out the truth about a lot of these aircraft accidents is we go right to the insurance report because the insurance guys always do say what's really happening because their necks on the line they're not going to pay for TWA 800 if the admiral uh, the uh, the admiral took an ad out in the New York Times saying that it was shot down by a missile 
they're going to say, hey, look, your own admiral says it was a missile. It's an act of war. We're not paying you TWA. So you can find out, and that's what we do as scientists. We find out what really is being written about it. I mean, Richard, this event could merely be the trigger, the predestined trigger to wake up sleepers in America. Like a lone wolf activation code. Sophisticated people in the operations end of, of intelligence agencies know this, deal with this all the time. But, but why would Sony allow themselves to be embarrassed in this way? I mean, some of those uh, uh, emails were... They're not embarrassed because if you listen to the CEO today, he said, look, we want this released. We're not pulling this. What happened is the theaters came to us and said they wouldn't play it. So they don't come out looking bad. Their bankers aren't angry with them, and the studio industry is not angry with them. And they're, they're not. This isn't going to hurt their brand. And uh, well, they're being Richard accused of being has, cowards. Richard they're... has the head of the uh, Richard has was on CNN and he's on Farik's show, and he said, "No, this won't hurt their brand, and it won't because um, listen, Richard, this is an arm of the, the military-industrial complex here." So spell it out for me, uh, Nelson. I'm a simple man. We just got about uh, 30 seconds here. But so what are we being set up for? This if, if is the movie predictive programming, or is is the fact that they they pulled it from the theaters predictive programming? Spell it out for me. Listen, it, 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 the top-down conspiracy always plays catch-up to the bottom-up conspiracy effects we say. So the owners of the system may be trying to pro foment another war. Another Gulf of Tonkin, an Alpha Pearl Harbor, 9/11. Uh, it, it, there's a lot going on uh, with, on with North Korea levels, yeah. on multiple levels. I'm sure the studio would like the government to allow them to vertically integrate once again and allow the stu- studios to own the theaters, which they haven't been able to do since the antitrust laws were put through. That's an interesting point. Listen, Nelson, we're out of time. Uh, always a pleasure. And uh, the Twitter feed uh, at State Psyops, and you can uh, find it right on the homepage at RichardSerrett.com. Some great, great material there, Nelson. Thanks as always. Thank you, Richard. Bye-bye. Nelson Thal. All right, my thanks to Tim Spreen for production, Albert Venzel, story producer, all of you listening at home. Back next week with a brand-new program. Hope you'll be along for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Would I speak in the light? Or would I speak in the dark? Speak in the light, which you hear in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Merry Christmas. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.